Thanks for joining our Dialing Into Your Best Dairy, a podcast series brought to you by dairy educators with Cornell University. In this series, we'll be walking through a cow's life cycle to pinpoint best management practices to maximize each cow's genetic potential in your herd. Welcome to the next episode in the Cornell Cooperative Extension podcast series. My name is Alicia Drinke, and I'm a dairy management specialist on the Southwest New York Dairy Livestock and Field Crops team. Today, I'm joined by Casey Havakis and Lindsay Ferlito, who are both dairy management specialists on the North Country Regional Ag Team. At this point in our series, our calf has grown and matured. She's had her first calf, and she started her lactation. Now we're going to dive a little bit deeper into how to manage that first lactation animal to get her pregnant again, have her maintain that pregnancy, and then freshen after the dry period. So Casey, nutrition is obviously an important component in reproductive success. How might your feeding program change over the course of breeding to gestation, through dry off, and then to calving? So when that first lactation animal is ready to be bred back, she's already going to be on that standard lactation diet, which in theory should meet her energy and protein requirements to support pregnancy as well as lactation. So nothing's really going to change at that point. But as she moves through her pregnancy and starts to have a reduction in milk yield, you really want to be careful that she isn't gaining excessive body condition. So as she naturally dries herself off and stops producing such a large quantity of milk, her energy demand is consequently going to go down. But if that cow maintains that high intake on that high energy diet, you may run into problems with her gaining excessive body condition. So two things to keep in mind here. One, the target body condition score at calving is 3.0. And two, cows that lose body condition score in the dry period have been shown to have more health events relative to cows that either maintained or gained body condition. So the key consideration for these lactating cows as they approach dry off is to make sure that they aren't gaining excessive body condition. And this can be done by making sure that they're bred back on time and don't have extended lactations. And if you have a facility that allows for it, potentially feeding a far off diet to minimize the excessive body condition gain in that late lactation period. So you touched on strategies for how to minimize body condition gain prior to dry off. But once the cow is actually dried off, do you have any advice for farms that may be struggling with maintaining body condition score during that dry period? Yeah, so once the cow is actually dried off, a whole other set of challenges arise. So I know I just mentioned the possibility of cows gaining body condition in the dry period, but that really isn't an ideal situation if that cow is already dried off with relatively higher body condition than what we want. So many researchers have that overconditioned dry cows have lower intake and more health issues after calving compared to cows that calve with a body condition score of around 3.0 to 3.25. So a concept that is gaining popularity to try to achieve that maintenance of body condition is to feed controlled energy dry cow diets, which allow the cow to physically consume as much feed as she wants without running the risk of gaining excessive body condition. These diets are formulated to meet 100% of the cow's dietary needs during pregnancy, and they've been shown to result in better metabolic health after calving. So that being said, while these diets are really great, there are a lot of factors to consider with these diets, and it's a little bit more complex than just diluting your diet with a ton of hay or straw. So if this is something that you'd like more information on or you'd like to implement on your farm, please reach out to your nutritionist or myself 
and we'd be happy to give you more details on these types of diets. Thanks, Casey. If a producer wanted to track body condition score change, do you have insight on to when this should be done? So as I just mentioned, looking at body condition and then potentially recording it from gestation to dry off through calving is a really great strategy. It doesn't cost the farm anything and I really wish that more farms would implement this. It can tell you so much about a feeding program and it's the first thing that I look at when troubleshooting transition cow issues. So I would recommend taking a body condition score measurement at breeding, when the cow is confirmed pregnant, at dry off, approximately halfway through dry off. If you can, try to get one about seven days prior to calving, and then again at two weeks and four weeks after calving. So then once you have that cow kind of cycle through that, uh, you can look back and see that they aren't losing excessive body condition after calving, and they're not gaining excessive body condition from the time of breeding through the time of calving. And then if they are losing excessive body condition or gaining excessive body condition, you can kind of fine tune your ration to better suit those cow's needs. Are there any other nutritional related areas that producers should consider if they're experiencing issues during this period in their cow's life? So two other areas that I like to have farms look at is the manure. So your lactating diet typically has a higher level of rapidly fermentable carbs. And this is going to make the manure a little bit looser, but we don't want to see extremely loose manure or manure with bubbles in it. Those are both signs of acidosis. And then during the dry period, you want to see manure being a little bit more firm, kind of like horse manure. If it's not mimicking that consistency, there may be some issues that um, you need to look at on the farm. And the other area that I like to look at is sorting. So it's one thing to put a well-formulated balanced diet in front of the cow, but it's a whole other thing if that cow is actually consuming that diet. So I usually like to look at sorting at the feed bunk when dealing with transition cow issues. And I think it can tell you a lot um, if the cows aren't actually consuming the diet that you have put in front of them. I guess it's also really important to mention here that nutrition, of course, is an important aspect, but there are so many other things that play a large role in success during this time. One of those things being management. So Lindsay is going to touch on a few management points here. Lindsay, what do you think we need to think about when we're trying to get cows pregnant from a management perspective? So after a cow successfully freshens and enters the milking herd as ideally a healthy cow, the next hurdle is to get her pregnant. Um, and good reproductive success on a farm has a large impact on both productivity and profitability. We want to get these cows in calf with as few services as possible, so obviously she will have another lactation, but it will also keep the herd at a lower average days in milk, and by doing so, this will improve our cost spent on farm and our overall profitability. The value of a pregnancy can vary between farms, and it's obviously dependent on certain market factors like milk price, replacement costs, call price but it can range from anywhere from $250 to $500, and the cost per cow for added days open is about two to $5 per day beyond 90 days open. So it really pays to get these cows back in calf quicker. Industry average pregnancy rates are about 20 to 21%, and this number has been increasing in recent years, and we're now seeing excellent programs achieving over 30%. Herds can utilize different strategies to obtain good reproductive performance, including off-sync protocols and timed AI, and more recently, the use of activity monitors. Each of these options offers its own pros and cons, but regardless of the breeding program, one of the biggest impacts on reproductive success is management of the program and the facilities the cows are housed in. So, for example, higher stocking densities in the breeding pen 
have been associated with lower conception rates and providing 14 inches or less of bunk space in the breeding pen has been associated with fewer cows pregnant at 150 days in milk. Thanks, Lindsay. So that's a huge financial consideration for those farms. So now that the cow actually is pregnant, are there any other management considerations throughout her lactation? So the demands on the cow and therefore her time budgets are going to change from freshening to peak lactation to dry off. Cows will decrease their lying time on the day of calving um, as she's obviously more active when she's giving birth. And then it's going to slowly increase over the next few days. But during peak lactation, we're going to see her lying time a bit lower, so averaging about 11 hours a day. And this is due to the demands of milking and consuming TMR to meet that high, high lactation demand. But as she starts to drop in her production um, through her cycle, her lying time is then going to start to increase. And during the dry period, we can see average lying times of about 14 to 15 hours a day, as all that cow is really doing at this point um, is resting and growing that calf. So we know from research that it's really important that cows are able to achieve these time budgets, but how can we actually make sure that she is meeting her time budget needs and how can we make sure that we're keeping her comfortable during this time? So one of the biggest things to keeping these cows comfortable is making sure she has the time and a comfortable place to lay down. So stalls need to be larger as the cow gets larger. So as she goes through her lactation and becomes a dry cow, She's obviously growing this calf and she's getting bigger, so she's going to want a larger stall. Studies have found that cows do prefer larger stalls, so stalls that are wider and longer with a less aggressive brisket board and a less aggressive neck rail. And they will actually lay down more in these stalls and stand more in the stall with four feet versus perching or standing in the alley. But it is always a balancing act between um, the comfort of the cow and the cleanliness of the cow. So we have to be kind of keeping both those things in mind. We also want to keep an eye on stocking density as it does tend to slowly increase over time. And every facility is going to have its own maximum. So a lot of farmers sometimes ask, what should my stocking density be? But it really depends on, on your facilities and your management. Keep in mind though that research has indicated that there are negative impacts on line time, overall behavior, production, and lameness. Once stocking density gets above about 115% on average in the lactating pens and above 100% in transition cow pens. So we want to always be aiming for a lower number since we're going to have peaks in calving and seasonality and a few cows always end up in the pen more than you think. So just make sure we're aiming for a slightly lower number. It's also important that we're keeping these cows comfortable throughout her whole lactation. As some studies have suggested that uh, cows that had lower lying times in the pre-fresh period then tended to have more hoof lesions in her next lactation. So keeping in mind that how we manage her in her dry period is going to impact her through her whole next lactation. Thanks, Lindsay. Those are really good points. Do you have any other considerations in terms of grouping strategy over her lactation? Yeah, so depending on the herd size and facility design, cows can be housed in anywhere from two to seven pens over, over the course of a lactation. And obviously housing cows in individual groups can have benefits. So we can feed specific diets like a fresh cow diet or a low cow diet, and there's the management ease of having all your cows in a breeding pen together. But we got to keep in mind that each of these group changes does have an effect on both the animal that's being moved, as well as the animals in the pen that are receiving new animals. And we can see decreases in dry matter intake, milk production, and rumination behavior. And some of these changes can last for up to a few days. Also through that transition period, ideally we'd like to house our first lactation heifers and our mature cows separately. 
This can allow you to size your stalls appropriately for different sizes and animals. It also helps reduce the discrepancy in size between animals in an individual pen, which help, can help reduce competition at both the feed bunk and the stalls. Thank you. So just to wrap up the management section, in your opinion, what are three things that a producer could do to ensure their management is where it should be? So one of the first things farmers can do is check their performance. So check your, your lactation peaks and your reproduction rates and benchmark yourself to both your own farm's data as well as to industry benchmarks um, and see how you're doing. They also can monitor cow comfort throughout these stages of lactation. Two things I'd really like farmers to be looking at more often are the prevalence of lameness and leg injuries throughout lactation. And according to the National Dairy Farm Program, farmers should have less than 5% severe lameness and less than 5% severe hock and knee injuries. And then lastly, farmers can go out and actually just measure their stalls and measure their current stocking density rates just to make sure they are where they should be. So for our final topic, um, we've talked about how you can manage the facilities and the cows through a lactation, but it's also important to double check these management practices by actually observing cow behavior. So Alicia is gonna provide some guidance on how to decipher what the cows are trying to tell us throughout their lactation. So Alicia, what are some of the things that we want to be looking for with our cows? Yeah, I think it's important that we are monitoring any and all of our cows' behaviors that we can, as that's their way of telling us how they're experiencing and interpreting the environment that they're placed in. Additionally, behavior can alert us to underlying issues, typically pretty early on um, in the process or the onset of a problem. So for example, if we see changes in feeding behavior or rumination, this can indicate to us that a cow is experiencing some sort of issue, either related to uh, a health issue or potentially an environmental issue. We should also look for behavioral changes that can indicate changes in thermal comfort, such as indicators of heat stress. So if a producer wanted to see if their cows actually were experiencing heat stress, what are some of the things or the, or the signs that they could look for? As cows experience increased heat load, they will often exhibit a variety of responses. These responses include increases in respiration rate and increases in body temperature, things like panting or breathing with their mouth open and their tongue protruding from their mouth, kind of like a dog. And we will also see behavioral changes like decreases in feed intake and rumination as well as increased bunching around the water trough, increased standing, and particularly increased standing near spray water if it's offered. All of these can sometimes be difficult to track though or measure, particularly things like respiration rate or body temperature, because it's pretty time consuming to go out there and measure the respiration rate or the body temperature of every single cow on your farm. So more typically, farms rely on longer term indicators of heat stress which can include decreases in milk production in the lactating herd or decreases in fertility. And while these are reliable indicators, arguably they're way too late in the game because once you see these decreases in milk yield or decreases in fertility, you know that the cows have already experienced that problem previously. They're not experiencing that issue of heat stress in that moment. And there's nothing you can really do to change it. So therefore, it's important to focus on earlier animal-based measures to identify heat stress. So 
So recently I've been collaborating on research looking at utilizing drool as an earlier indicator of heat loading cattle. So far, the data suggests that cows begin drooling earlier on in the buildup of heat load. It's important to note, however, that heat stress is not the only time cattle drool. As many of you probably know, we will likely see cows drooling when they're ruminating or sometimes when they're consuming feed. So when we're looking at drool for heat stress, we're looking at that long stringy drool as presented by cows when they're not ruminating, drinking, or feeding. So these earlier indicators such as drool and even respiration rate can help identify when our heat abatement is not effective and know if we need to provide additional cooling for those animals. Thanks, Leisha. That's really interesting. But with a lower milk price, how does a farm justify spending money on heat abatement strategies? Yeah, of course, financial times are tough. Um, but when we consider that cows start to experience heat stress at temperatures around 68 degrees Fahrenheit, the amount of time your cows are exposed to conditions that can influence heat stress really starts to add up and can affect your production losses overall. So economic modeling suggests that across the United States, every single year, we experience production losses of $1.5 billion from heat stress alone. However, by providing shade, spray water, and fans, rather than just providing shade, we can reduce that economic loss by as much as 43%. Arguably, these production losses might actually decrease even further as we know these economic models don't take lameness into account, which is another huge issue from heat stress and obviously in, has huge financial implications. As we also continue to see changes in weather pattern and increases in the number of warmer days, the amount of heat stress that your cows are going to be experiencing is going to continue to increase. So it's really going to make that financial aspect pencil out a lot quicker. And finally, we've seen a lot of increased research focusing on heat abatement for dry cows and younger stock, and it shows a tremendous amount of benefits and shows that the economic aspect pencils out pretty quickly as animals that experience heat stress either during the dry period or as heifers do have increased issues with reproduction when you're trying to breed them. The University of Florida has shown that calves also born to heat stressed cows have lower production compared to their genetic potential or calves that are not born to heat stressed animals. So it's really important that we're providing heat abatement on the farm and providing it to all age classes of animals because it's really going to pencil out financially rather quickly and also make you more efficient. Um, you know, you're going to be able to produce more milk and have uh, more economic benefits with fewer animals. So these are just a few key considerations to keep in mind. Obviously, there are always more things to think about and act upon to ensure that cows are getting into calf maintaining their pregnancy, and then freshening successfully. If you would like more information on any of this, please reach out to your local regional extension specialist or visit the ProDairy website. We hope you'll tune into the next episode of our podcast series with our final episode. Thank you. This podcast has been presented by Regional Dairy Educators with Cornell Cooperative Extension and ProDairy.